Welcome to Dad Is Not Now with your host, yours truly, Ishmael Street. I created Dad Is Not Now to change the narrative for men of color and fatherhood and change the narrative for things I care about. On this episode, I had the privilege to talk to a good brother by the name of Malachi Alcinir, who was the protege, who was protege by Rock and Roll Hall of Famer and one of the forefathers of hip hop, the late great Gil Scott Heron. Malachi just recently released his memoir, The Letters to Gil. Malachi Alcinir, profound coming of age memoir, the story of surviving physical and racial abuse and discovering a new sense of self-worth under the wing of the great artist, poet, and civil rights activist, Gil Scott-Heron. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. All right, cool. Before I start the episode of Dad Is Not A Noun, I want to thank my sponsor, the Real Dads Network. The Real Dads Network is a resource and network organization that provides information and opportunities to improve the lives of black fathers. Through activities and events, the RDN promotes and portray positive black fathers worldwide. For more information on the Real Dads Network, go to www.realdadsnetwork.org, as well as the link will be in the description below. So for you, yeah, yo There will never it matters and even more when you feel like it doesn't Protect you so you never feel like you wasn't No, I'm right alongside you, he but that I'm behind you But always got you, hinder discussion, nothing means more First one to offer his shoulders for what you preach for Thought I saw the eyes of the world until I seen yours <laughs> And know that I ain't see a better view yet I'm with whatever, so don't ever you fret Know that you covered, not a hurdle or a heartbreak To change what a part take Cause none of them won't ever get comfortable in your walkway My job is to aware you, fully loaded, prepare you For all of the above that I'm never letting get near you But still in all, give you every advantage I found Couldn't find a better fit for them, along with my crown And since the baton was passed, hopping down Cause failing's not an option, and dad is not a noun, not at all Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Ishmael from Dad Is Not A Now. What's going on? I'm truly excited because the legendary Gil Scott-Hara was finally inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It should have happened a long time ago, but he is there, and I'm excited. And my special guest was a protege of his, and he just released a memoir entitled Letter, Letters to Gil. My brother, I love you. Malachi Eisenier, what's up, brother? Hey, thank you, Ishmael. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my name is Malachi Nasser. Um, this is my book, um, Letters to Gil, uh, with a foreword by Lem Sisse, who in England is one of the foremost uh, black poets uh, over here, and also was a personal friend of mine and a personal friend of Gil's. Um, so the book Letters to Gil is really, it's not a biopic on Gil, okay? That was not the uh, attempt. It is my life story um, told through my point of view, um, which encapsulated, among other things, the 27 years that I was mentored by and studied under the tuition and uh, you know, the guidance of 
Gil Scott Heron. And it's and I've read the book, man. This is a beautiful book. But before we get into the book, um, how's your heart? The reason why I ask how's your heart because often people say how you doing, and usually we're fine from the outside, but in the inside, you know, we're we're struggling. Um, so how's your heart doing today, brother? Well, you know, when when people say how you doing, they generally don't want to know. So if you tell them, actually, I'm having a really hard time, they're like, brother, brother, please, man. You know, okay, you know, okay. You know, so people will ask you it rhetorically when they actually really don't care to damn how you do it. Uh, how am I doing? I've, you know, for the last 12 months, man, since um, since I released um, my research findings, when I traced my ancestry back through um, slavery in the Caribbean, in Demerara and um, Grenada, you know, um, I published my findings on the BBC and it got like a million and a half hits in like 24 hours. It was like viral. And from that moment onwards, my life has just been a complete whirlwind, like book deals, like people talking about films, you know, um, constant media. I have not stopped doing media since last July. It's been literally on a daily basis. And, you know, when I met Gil Scott-Heron, uh, the funny thing was that um, in 1984, you know, backstage at a show in, in Liverpool, I was destitute. I was homeless. I was living in a hostel for homeless black youths. I'd had nine years in what you guys in America would call group homes or juvie, you know. And I came out of there at 18 years of age and the social services gave me £100 and abandoned me and told me to just get on with it and just left me homeless on the streets and destitute. I could barely read and write because I'd had very little education, you know. And I went backstage and I met Gil Scott Heron. And, you know, he was kind enough to, you know, to... to you know, inquire as to my well-being, you know, as you have just done. And um, and he could see that, you know, I had potential and I had intellect, but, you know, I was struggling in that environment. So he gave me an opportunity to leave the environment and he offered me a chance to come on tour with the band, which I did. And it was really a lifeline that he threw me. And uh, that sparked the beginning of what became a 27-year friendship where over that time, I evolved as a person, you know, mentally, physically, spiritually, you know, I became proactive, you know, conscious, you know, um, political. And, and, you know, as a consequence of his mentoring, you know, I led the music industry upside down, inside out, the media industry, and, and also managed to, you know, get myself in a position where I could be useful to him in a lot of different ways. So, you know, I would act as his personal assistant. I would tour manage sometimes. I would, you know, um, do the merchandising for his products when he had product launches, handle the press, you know. There's a whole range of different things that I did for him um, and a whole range of different roles over that period right up until he sadly passed away in, in, in 2011. Um, but when he passed away, I told my story to the, to the Guardian newspaper um, it was called Gil Scott Heron Saved My Life, and they published it over four pages. Um, and that kind of went a bit viral as well. And, and it was that article which forms the foundation of this book, which was really just my backstory explaining like the kind of miserable existence that I had um, up until the point where I met Gil and how his intervention as a positive role model and a mentor fundamentally changed the entire course of my life from you know what was a pathway to prison um you know put me on a completely different trajectory where i went to college i went to university i got a degree i got a master's degree and i'm currently now 
um, reading for a PhD at the University of Cambridge uh, with a full scholarship. And, you know, that's 10 years after Gil's passed on, but that's his legacy still unfolding, you know. And I think that's important too. And one thing I got from the book, and again, please people out there get this book. It's an amazing book. It's a great read. I can see this being a movie, but I think one of the important things about the book is about the significance of mentorship mm -hmm. and, and, and the role of older black men being mentors to younger black boys. So like, talk about that significance of that, of mentorship. Well, up until that point, I never had a positive role model. I mean, my dad was very old when he had us. He died when I was a teen, you know, um, prior to him passing away. He was, you know, he had a heart attack and, you know, stroke and became um, paralyzed. So, you know, the last years of his life were spent on a geriatric ward in a hospital and I didn't get to know him. And then I was taken into care and, you know, whilst I was in the care of the state, so-called, um, you know, being traumatized by that experience, I was, um, you know, kind of, you know, off off the radar of society, and no one was really concerned about being a, any kind of role model to me, other than perhaps you know some of them guys on the streets. You know, when you get when you come out of those places, you know you're kind of uh, you know like ripe for the plucking for you know the gangsters and you know people on the streets who are just thinking, oh, he ain't got no one to protect him, he ain't got no one to support him, he's going to need some you know um, associations in the hood and so on to survive. So, you know, those people, you know, they come at you and act like, you know, they want to be your family and they want to, you know, guide you and all this kind of stuff. But all they want to guide you to is, is badness. And, you know, all they want to do is exploit you. So, you know, people looking for those father figures, um, you know, they can find themselves getting that from the wrong people. Um, in the case of Gil, you know, he didn't want all of that from me. He had his own, you know. Um, when people would ask, you know, you know, why he does what he does, um, he said that his grandma, who's like one of them old down home South women, you know, from old grandma from Tennessee, you know, she said to him when he was a boy and she took him in, you know, when his father went across to Scotland to play football for Celtic and his mother was working in Chicago, you know, he went down to his grandma's in Tennessee and she was like, you know, if you could help someone, why wouldn't you? Like she just didn't see why you wouldn't help someone if you had the chance to. And that was the values that she instilled in him, some real down home, you know, old school Southern black woman values, you know, which, you know, that I suppose penetrated his heart at a young age when she was helping him. And that was something that shaped him during his formative years. And, you know, and this is the important thing is being able to interject in a positive way in, in, you know, young black people's lives. Um, during those formative years, so that your impact will then have a lasting impact, you know, effect. So even if they go off the rails at some point, they'll always have a positive vantage point that they can harken back to because they'll always remember a time when it wasn't that bad, when there was something better, you know, when there was something good in their lives. So no matter how far they go, you know, there'll always be a chance for them to come back because they'll have a point of reference to come back to. And that will be that, you know, that kindness, you know, that was shown to them during those formative years. In the absence of that, you know, then you can really, um, you know, instill any kind of values in, in a child um, and they can be bad ones. And, and that's all too often what happens, particularly, you know, when you're in a single parent household, you know, uh, I'm not saying all single parent households end up like that. Some single parents do a fantastic job. 
But what I'm saying is when you're in a situation where, you know, for instance, you only have your mum and you don't have your dad, you know, as a boy, you'd be looking for that male role model. And if that male role model is not there, then you might seek to find that somewhere else. And the character that you might find on the streets might not, you know, have your best interests at heart. So, you know, that's the problem. And, you know, when you look at the level of single parenthood that's happening within society, you know, particularly within the black community, that is also by design. You know, that is engineered by society as a legacy of slavery and colonialism. You know, we, we didn't have that kind of concept in Africa before we were taken as slaves. You know, it takes a village to raise a child. You know, these are kind of African proverbs. You know what I mean? If someone, you know, was ill or whatever, somebody else in the village would, would take up that slack. And they had a, a social welfare system before there was a thing in the West called social welfare where, you know, people were not abandoned, but people were raised up. And that was common across Africa and many different um, cultures within, within the African continent. And obviously slavery and colonialism just destroyed all of that. You know, it separated everyone, it commodified people, you know, so they, were, they took away their humanity, it took away their sense of, of belonging, their identity, their family, you know, it took away everything using, you know, men as studs on farms to breed slaves. You know, making a man sleep with 20 women, you know, so that he could impregnate them all. So they all, you know, even whether it was his mother, his daughter or whatever, they didn't care because they were treating it the same as you would with a stallion in a field full of mares. You know, it was being treated in exactly the same way. They even called them a book stud, which was exactly the same as what you would call a stallion. Yeah. You know, so when you have that and then you have the slave master raping the white, you know, the black woman every night and, and her not being able to do anything and the black man not being able to do anything to defend or protect her, you know, as Bell Hooks pointed out in, in, in her seminal work, you know, Ain't I a Woman? You know, she's a black feminist and she talks about this dilemma between the black man and the black woman where the, there was a lack of respect, you know, that the black woman lost respect for the black man because he couldn't protect her during slavery. You know what I mean? There was an emasculation of the black man during slavery, which has resulted in this residue now of, of the kind of things that we see in the social fabric of, of society and particularly within black communities. It is, you know, it is a result of that treatment. It was not how we started off. It's not how families are in Africa these days, Definitely. you know, um, despite even, you know, the colonial kind of input. Um, so, so that, um, you know, uh, inherited um, set of negative characteristics which you know um, destroy if you like the black family and the fabric of of, of black community um, is very much evident in the diaspora and within our communities today and it's only through having insight of that and where it comes from that we can start to address that issue ourselves and you know in order to be able to get to a stage where you're even thinking like that Right. You have to have a positive black role model who interjects in your life during your formative years and brings it to your attention. Otherwise, you wouldn't even know because there's so much of it going on. The situation as it is, is just considered normal. Right. And if everyone's doing it, why would you think any different? Yeah, and I think you have an emotional connection because your story, like when you were young, um, your family were, were, were basically kicked out, you know? Yeah. By, by, the, by the government. They're doing it in America right now. There was a thing I was watching on a, on a program on Facebook, um, something that they were doing with black communities where they're burying black communities on the lakes. Yeah. Yeah. They actually went to black communities where people had thriving black communities, a couple of hundred families, you know, they had uh, buildings, they had businesses, they were doing well. 
and 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 you know the authorities just came along and went no we're not having this and they built a dam and just flooded the village and drove everybody out and and put it under a lake and then now white people have boats on that lake where there was the thriving black community we saw it with black wall street you know they use um over here they use compulsory purchase orders like they force you to sell your house for a peanuts price and then they take you from a homeowner and make you a tenant and then they put you in the projects so you go from being in a situation where you have inherited passed down wealth but property you know to be an, a dependent upon the state in 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 poverty and the same thing they do in america with the with the law of eminent domain yeah. you know they use the eminent domain so oh, we need to put a road here or a railroad or whatever or a lake or a, you know and then they just go in and they take it all up and they you know do what they're going to do but these are feudal laws you know this law is america's eminent domain came from the british uh, legal system because a common law country is a former british colony and that british legal system was feudal law from the time of william the conqueror where he said i own everything and no one owns nothing and he made everyone a serf under him and therefore even his dukes and and you know the people who give him militias and armies to help him conquer england you know he divided it all up and he gave them what we call feudal title he was like you can have a a freehold but if the chain of title breaks like you die and you don't leave an heir it defaults back to the crown or you can have a leasehold where it, a period of time and then it defaults back to the freeholder so these methods of of of, of tenure for property and the transition of wealth guaranteed that no matter what happened with that over time it would all come back to the crown it would all come back to the state and that is the basic principle of the legal tenure of land ownership in this country right now and it's exactly the same in america you know and and that is the problem okay it's not going back to the crown but it goes back to the state so you have a basic um, position where the, the state can always intervene to destroy a family or a community or a people by going in and just taking the land off them you know what i mean and doing what they want with the land to ensure the end of that civilization they did it with native americans they gave them reservations they took reservations away from them they pushed them out west and then what are they going to do push them into the sea you know yeah. um you know this is the kind of stuff that they do and until we have knowledge and until we have insight and until we penetrate the halls of power you know and start looking at these laws and and these arcane uh, regulations that they've been using to control us and understand the impact and the effect that these things have upon us we're not going to do anything about it and that is the reason why we have to stand up because otherwise if we're not doing anything about it we're subject to it and as long as we're subject to it we continue to suffer from it definitely and i think one of the things too from reading your book is that i think what your father had to deal with he kind of fell into a form of depression which kind of kind of led to like a trickle down effect on just everything because you know in the book you kind of finally remember your childhood a little bit with your dad and like that the, the uh, uh part of um uh the where you guys lived in the suburban area and then mm -hmm. they took your uh yeah, they, yeah and moved you to the to the projects and yeah. they saw your father slowly depleting like like just talk about that just if you can remember that like if yeah you, i remember it well i mean it basically just you know it, it, it just it ripped the heart out of the community um you know because my father was central to the guyanese community he'd been there long before the empire windrush landed with the jamaicans you know 
after the war. My father was there from 1936. So by the time the Empire Windrush came in with the, with the post-war Jamaicans, you know, and people from the Caribbean to fill up the factories because they had labor shortages because of the war. You know, my father was already well established. So they would come and rent rooms off him and stay in his house, you know, even before we were born. So, you know, he already had that established and plus he had land back in Guyana and property there too. And his mother had property and land and his father had property and land. Do you see what I'm saying? So he come from generations of property and land. Yeah. But what they did in one swift maneuver is took away that and then totally impoverished them. And he was never able to get back to Guyana to claim his land. So that land ended up getting a portion to somebody else. He lost that land. The land he had here was taken away from him through compulsory purchase. And we grew up in the projects, you know. So, you know, that was um, a way of being able to take generations of development of a black family and kick them right back to square one again, you know, in, in just one generation through social policy. In this case, housing policy. And, and it's, it's crazy because you have this generational black wealth that turned into generational black trauma. And black poverty, That's as right. they did with black, black Wall Street. Yeah. You know, they couldn't work out how to deal with black Wall Street. So they just rolled into town like a bunch of crackers and burnt it down. They burnt it down, you know, because they couldn't do anything. So by the idea of, of, of burning things down and burying it, if we take, you know, burying it under a lake, if we take that concept and apply that to colonialism and look at Africa, every time a country comes up, Libya, mm -hmm. Libya had a GDP which was higher per head of capita than any other country in Africa. It was equivalent to the GDP of European nations. They destroyed Libya. They completely destroyed it. They left it ungovernable. Somalia decided that they wanted to have self-governance away from colonial rule after Siad Bari, I think 1989. George Bush said, let's go in there. The world said, no, we don't want to do that. George Bush went in by himself and then 29,000 troops and then he pulled 20,000 out and said, put UN ones in there and look at Somalia to this day, back to the Stone Age. Baghdad, the center of, of civilization, the cradle of civilization, the ancestral home of Prophet Abraham. I mean, this, you know, this is like, this is the domain of King Nimrod in biblical times. We're talking ancient civilization here. First university in the world. And what did they say? We're going to bomb you back to the Stone Age. And they did. Syria, look at it now. The whole entire country is in rubble. You know, Egypt decided to have its elections and have its own government. They went in, Obama, and took the government out and placed another tyrant in who was going to do their bidding. You know, and this, the same thing can be said of Algeria, Tunisia, just wherever you go, okay? They just did one in Equatorial Guinea a couple of weeks ago. Prior to, um, you know, that, Mark Thatcher was trying to do Equatorial Guinea, um, you know, during, during the, 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 um, the time of uh, David Cameron. So... You know, every effort is made to keep black people down. And wherever we rise up, there is always a concerted effort to put us back down. Because the principle is that 
white supremacy must reign supreme. That's why, you know, when Fannie Lou Hamer was going around the southern states, you know, telling people to vote, she was being terrorized by the Klan. You know, when white liberals were going down there with Martin Luther King, they was lynching white liberals from the north for going down and telling black people to vote. You know, just after, um, you know, uh, the, 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 you know, they got the votes in during, I think it was Johnson's presidency. So, you know, you have all these examples of black people trying to rise up and then white people pushing them back down again. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is white supremacy. There's no other reason for it. There's no rationale for it. We are human beings, part of the same human family. The only rationale is that they believe inherently that they have a right to be superior. They're not superior to us in physical prowess. We've showed that in every sport. They're not superior to us in mental prowess. You know, we've got black astronauts and geophysicists and scientists and all that kind of stuff. And we had all that kind of stuff before we were colonized. You know, the more civilized Spain when they were still backwards, you know, and they were black African Muslim North Africans from Mali and Mauritania. You know, they weren't poor and impoverished. You have Mansa Musa, the richest man in the history of mankind. He was from the Emir of Mali, you know, in the 16th century. So, you know, these narratives that have been perpetuated have been perpetuated in order to justify slavery and colonialism. That's why we need to decolonize, you know, the curriculum. We need to decolonize ourselves. You know, we need to undo the, the, the programming in them and in, undo the programming in us, you know, so that we do not accept the status quo moving forward. Definitely. And I think that's the one thing that Gil Scott helped you with was because you were like a blank canvas. And now, I didn't know anything. <laughs> I, I met Gil, I can actually say I was like, I was a dumbass Negro when I met him. You know, I knew nothing. I knew about the care system and how to survive inside. I didn't know anything about the streets and life and the world and geopolitics and all of that. I hadn't been exposed to none of that. Gil exposed me to all of that, you know? And, and, and that's and, what's put me in a situation now where I'm able to do the same for others, you know? And that's the, that's the big thing is what you do with it. You know, because some people don't take advantage of the opportunity, but you did. And I think that's one of the key things that stick with you. What Gail told you is like when someone gives you opportunity, take advantage of it. Yeah. And Gil always said, you know, if you want to find out if someone's for real, give them a job. Yeah. You know, and that was, you know, Gil was that kind of person. You know, he would throw you a lifeline and then it's up to you whether you wanted to, you know, wrap it around your neck and swing from it, you know, miss it or, or, or grab it and hold on to it. You know, but it's been a real pleasure talking with you, Ibrahim. Um, you know, thank you so much for, for having me on the podcast today. Right. And uh, if anyone wants to tag me on this, you know, at Malik and the OGs, um, that's my uh, handle on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're interested in getting the book, it's out in America uh, by um, the William Collins imprint of HarperCollins. It's out in Canada. It's out in Europe and Australia. It's called Letters to Guild by Malik Al Nasser. And... Um, there's an audiobook version as well. And yeah. the audiobook version has some bonus material, some music I recorded, and also some uh, some narrative from Gil Scott Heron and a few others. But it's been a real pleasure to be here with you today, uh, Evelyn. Thank, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. All those amazing links will be in the description and below. Uh, before we end this, do you have any words of wisdom you want to give to the people that's listening? 
I would just say, you know, if you want to elevate yourself, educate yourself. Nice, nice. And this was a great conversation. Definitely want to have you back on. Um, I'm waiting for my hard copy to come in because I'm going to send it to you for you to sign because I, I need that in my life. But it's going to be a while before I can do anything because I'm winding down now, Ibrahim. I've got research to do and I've got another book to write. So um, I'm not going to be doing no media for a while, man. I'm stepping out of the scene for for at least a year. So, you know, I just wanted to do this for you before I step down, you know, because um, I know you've been real throughout this whole process. But I've been doing one year, I've been doing wall-to-wall -wall media and I can't get no work done because I can't stop doing media. So right yeah. now i got a book to write. i got a PhD to get. So I'm, I'm going to be focusing on that, you know, so, um, so take what you can out of this. Cause this is the last one you're going to get for a while. No, I appreciate it, but I promise you, I'm going to be at, I'm going to be at your graduation. Yeah. <laughs> Look forward to that, man. <laughs> All right, my brother. All right, man. Love you, man. Thank you. You too, man. Take care, man. Peace. Bye.